0: Oh, my in-laws just called to let us know they're on their way over and we're out of food. Great. Luckily, Instacart helps me get groceries delivered in as fast as an hour. Plenty of time to cook an in-law-worthy meal. Now, what to make? Chicken parm. Perfect. Download the Instacart app or visit instacart.com to get $10 off your first order using the code PREPARED10. Now the only thing to worry about is dinner
1: conversation. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $35. Delivery subject to availability. Additional terms apply. China. We play ping pong pong, in China. Hello and welcome to China Econ Talk. I'm your host, Jordan Schneider. If you listen to this show, I am pretty sure you will also like the China Econ Talk newsletter. Every week, I break down and analyze Chinese language media sources on the big news in tech and business. Check it out at chinaecontalk.substack.com. 5G. It's going to change your life. The next generation of mobile network technology will allow everything from phones to cars to God knows what people will dream up with to stream data 100 times faster than they currently can in 4G, practically ensuring that in a few years, folks will think 2019 was the equivalent to living in the dial up age. Quote, 5G's integral role in these transformational technologies, Paul Triolo writes, means that to a much greater extent than with 4G, the development and deployment of the next generation network is being influenced by political concerns, even as information and communications technology companies, firms in affected sectors such as manufacturing and automobiles and the entire national industries jockey for position in the emerging ecosystem. Did I write that? Yeah. Wow, that's good. Right? With the two biggest players in the space, the US and China, locked in a trade war that seems to never end, we are excited to explore the dynamics and implications of 5G with Paul. Paul is the practice head for geotechnology at the Eurasia Group. He is also the owner of a new Huawei phone and has recently been able to upgrade it to 5G. So, Paul, has your life been changed? Well, (laughs) I hope so. Um, I've only
0: had the 5G capability for uh, a few hours, but I'm already feeling pretty, pretty, pretty bold. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm... I was one of the few and early adopters of the Chinese internet subscription in 1995 with Beijing Telecom. A little faster now A 56k dial-up, and now I'm looking at streaming. You know, one one gig or more. Um, but I have to find the right app uh, to do it, and I'm. I'm gonna, that's what I'm going to be doing for the next couple of days is is, is testing it. I, I understand from other people who've uh, who've turned on their 5G in the last couple of weeks that that it's it, the signal is there in a lot of cities in China, particularly in
1: Guangdong and in and uh, and in, in, in Beijing. Beijing. Paul, how's your mobile a um, uh, first person shooter level. Do you think you're ready to uh, to compete or or do you really need that
0: 5G edge? I think I really need the the low latency, uh, which we may not have yet, but, um, um, you know,
1: that will come. (laughs) Okay. So, you know, you've been at this, you've been at this a long time, Paul. How has covering Chinese science and technology policy evolved in the decades you've been looking at it? Great question. Well, you know, it's gone from basically uh, people considering China, uh, China's
0: ability to innovate or to develop uh, technology, a kind of a joke to now China is the 800 pound gorilla that's going to, Devour the U.S. on 5G. So I think um, it's interesting that we've sort of come full circle on this over the last 30 years. When I first came to, to to China, I tried to make a phone call from Beijing, a landline phone call from Beijing to Xi'an where I was teaching, and I could barely understand what the people were saying on the line because there was so much interference. Yep. Um, and then so now to have you know to have a 5G phone in my hand uh, and, and have a you know all the other accoutrements that that uh, involves is pretty 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 amazing. What that implies in terms of Infrastructure build out and sort of, you know, just tech development um, really rapidly in in, in the space of 30 years.
1: What are the most surprising things? Were there turning points? What kind of like learning um, should we should we take from the the sort of progress that we've seen over the past?
0: Well, Um, I think, you know, that the interesting part of this whole process is that clearly the Chinese government saw the technology not as threatening necessarily but as sort of enabling both both from a sort of economic point of view and from a governance point of view and a control point of view right so so they, they, they didn't they, they could have decided for example on the internet to to only do do what Saudi does which is to only let the sites they they like uh, be accessible sort of a whitelist but yeah. China chose you know they didn't choose that route for example on the internet they chose to to come up with a blacklist and to, to control part of it, but to not really throttle the technology development, they, they've kept ahead of it. The governance capacity piece of it, I think, that people miss, which is that, that they viewed technology early on as enabling them to do better governance, and that includes both the good and sort of you know the things that people worry about in the West, like techno authoritarianism, surveillance. But you know, really, the, the 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 thing is that they really embraced the technology and have spread it to every corner of China. I mean, you go to rural China and you can you can everybody's on their 5G phone, um, and now well, you for, know. Let's be <laughs> 4G, maybe yeah. 4G really right, 4G, right. Right. Yeah. but well, but, but now I, I was at a com- just one a, a good example. Of this is I was in a conference in Guangzhou and I talked to um, the CEO of a really a new company that's now uh, working with five percent of. China's farmers on smart agriculture. So mm-hmm. they're the AI empowered drones are going out there and mapping the fields um, and optimizing, you know, production. And the, and the farmer doesn't have to; he can rent the drone, right? So I mean, that's an example of the sort of the, the, of how I think the government views technology as an enabler and a sort of a, a you know a, a way to improve people's lives at the same time as they you know they 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 are going to control
1: aspects of it that they don't like. So what do you think it is about the system that led it to take? This perspective, as opposed to a more um, uh, restrictive one, that's a good question. I think probably
0: um, maybe the the, the, the the leadership Chinese leadership is sort of their engineers. A lot of them yeah. came out of an engineering background, and I think I think this idea of engineering, you know, society in a sense is is probably uh, accounts for this uh, this uh, this desire to sort of use technology um, in. In ways um, to, to basically deal with a really a difficult problem, right? Which is a huge country, lots of lots of different problems, um, and so I think they they saw technology maybe naively in some sense that, that they could solve some of the big problems that China faces, whether it's you know. Um, water issues and diverting, the, you know, the, the Yangtze River to the north, um, or whether it's, you know, trying to control the population because the low, lower levels of education mean that there's a lot of, um, you know, people don't obey the law or whatever. So yeah. I think they, they sort of saw technology as giving them a chance to sort of corral the some of the aspects of the, of the country that are a huge challenge, whether it's, you know, feeding people or making sure that they're not getting
1: into trouble. Sure. What do you think are the biggest blind spots still remaining in the the CCP's tech policy.
0: I think that one of the big ones is that the, 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 gov- the role of the government in, in this. So I think if you look at you know China and, and and sort of the success of the private sector and the technology sector, it's really been driven by companies that are operating in very competitive markets like Higher, Huawei is a good example, DJI. I mean, these are companies that may have come out in part of the state sector and had some benefits early on in terms of subsidies, but they're... To, for them to be, they're be, doing it, yeah. But for them to be global players, you know, that that's 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 not the government driving that. I mean, the government maybe sup- has a supportive role, is is a, a customer of, the, of of theirs, but they're really competing at the cutting edge. So doubling down on you know, Made in China 2025 and other industrial policy, um, I think that's that's really going to be tough because y- unless you just want to produce companies that are going to compete in China, if you want to pr- produce global players, then the, letting the market forces work is a beautiful thing, and that's produced arguably China's most successful. Tech, com- tech companies.
1: And then the the downside, of course, being that if you only have folks focusing domestically, right. you don't get to the real cutting edge, which yeah. is what the goal of this is in the first place. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and again, I think uh, I, I, you come back to, you know, there aren't that
0: many really successful examples so that the sort of hardware Guys, this is what China does well. that The Huawei's, the hires um, have really sort of led the way. But the the, the real challenge is going to be the Alibabas and the Tencent, and the Baidus, the those sort of over the top players, because those models are h- already inherently harder to take globally. And then if you, if you if you know if they're not able to compete domestically with foreign companies, um, then they're going to be less less ready to compete globally. So we're at an interesting point now where Chinese companies that want to compete globally are going to really need to become more competitive, and that's not going to be something the government is going to be able to. Really
1: Drive, I think. So, in order to be able to compete competitively globally, you have to be able to be allowed to. Um, And I think the tenor around the world, certainly over the past six months, has really shifted pretty dramatically. um, Not only on the you know bottom stack stuff, but also on the on the software side um, and the consumer facing uh, side. So, you know, going abroad isn't just uh, it's not just Yongan. It's also being uh, allowed to, and over the past year, we've seen uh, real uh, aggressive pushback on a lot of different right. uh, fronts. Not only in the Huawei's of the world, but also you know, the Byte Dances, Ten Cents, Alibaba's. You know, we've we've seen Blizzard, we've seen um, TikTok getting pressure all around the world. Right. Not to mention right. Huawei, of course. So, to what extent do you feel like all this pushback in these Western capitals is justified? That's a great question.
0: Great question. So, I think um, it it probably depends on the company. Some of them are longstanding, of course. Um, concerns uh, around. Things like 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 mobile technology and Huawei uh, becoming the poster boy there, and then the advent of five G has driven that. I think the lately, you know, things like ByteDance Dance and TikTok; those are some of the problems I think that Facebook, you know, faced initially too, which is totally. that that these these kinds of content platforms when they when they're in these different markets, they didn't realize how how their platforms would be used. So Facebook never anticipated that that they'd have to have people monitoring ethnic violence and the, the likelihood of that in rural
1: Thailand, right? Um, and so now they're. I love this quote from. Uh, from from <laughs> Disney's Iger saying, uh, someone asked him like, "So so, what do you think?" You know, they right. were talking in 2016 whether or right. not he should buy uh, Twitter. He's like, "What do you think about not doing right. that?" He's he says, "I you know thank my lucky stars every day. I do not have to deal <laughs> right. with right. Uh, managing speech all around the world." Right,
0: right, and, th- and those are huge things. But the, of course, the added issue here with China is that the perception that all these Chinese companies are doing something at the behest of Beijing or they're too close to the Chinese government or that the Chinese government can order them to do something right so yeah. that's that's sort of the added burden that Chinese companies have uh, when they're when they're going ab- abroad now of course interestingly there are these examples like Haier nobody talks about you know Haier's refrigerators in the US listening in on their their client their student clients on campus right so there are companies Chinese companies that have sort of that are in less sensitive areas um, do you think it's, you under think the it's radar because they're less in less sensitive areas
1: or just because no one thinks about right. it?
0: Um, I, well, I, I think it's, it's a, probably both of those. But I, I, I was at a conference um, this week and I talked to the chief technical officer of uh, high air. And, you know, it's amazing what they're doing. Right. That's the, they're putting smarts into all of their things. And so it is interesting that and they're all over. Globally, they're a big yep. player. They're a big player in the U.S. And nobody, they got cultural nobody, cachet. Hire
1: brothers. Come right, on. Right,
0: right. Exactly. So maybe, maybe, you know, nobody wants to take away the, those, the refrigerators where the students are warming up their, or cooling off their beer, you know, on campus. But, um, but so I think that, that each of the, the, the companies that have generated this, this, um, this sort of blowback, um, you know, they have a different. Different issues. They have a different level of PR. Whether they've been able to the store the narrative they are able to tell, Um, and of course they're they're in different markets. Like obviously, five G has become this huge uh, issue because of concern around who's building the infrastructure and all the data it's going to carry and it's going to be you know it's going to be a huge mess. And so. Uh, obviously, then Huawei and ZTE have become sort of poster boys for um, you know, for, for concern in the West and
1: yeah. particularly in the US. Yeah, not to mention you right. know Xinjiang, um, which right. I think you know we we saw this recent uh, New York Times article over the past few days, and I, I right. you know, would imagine that this will only sort of increase the focus on the 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 what what were the, those four AI firms which yeah there were eight AI the firms
0: um, that were put on the entity list uh, in early October, and a very interesting case, right? I mean, because these are this is this the entity list is traditionally. Been used for sort of clear national security concerns. You know, companies that are shipping you know, the t- nuclear products missiles, to, to, to small companies in Iran. So both in the case of ZTE and Huawei, they were being the, the NA list was being used a little more broadly against really bigger companies and trying to manage bigger problems. Now here in the case of of, of Megvii, Hikvision, Hike Vision, you know, these that right, the the, 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 the SenseTime, Yitu, these are these are sort of these second tier Chinese companies that are involved in AI. Uh, And in security and and, and surveillance. And so the interesting part of this, though, again, though, is, okay, so people can understand that there's concern in the U.S. about Xinjiang um, and and what's going on there. But the question is, what are the criteria for these companies to be put on the list, right? So if the company is selling, if 1% of its sales is to the Public Security Bureau in Xinjiang, is that enough to get them on the list? And, and, And what action can they take? to get off the list is also interesting because um, for example Megvii has uh, in its IPO filing in in Hong Kong claims it has taken steps to you know to reduce its exposure in Xinjiang yeah. so this raises it raises the broader issue of how the U.S. is reacting to China's rise as a tech power, and if you're sitting in Beijing, you're seeing this list. We just a list of a list of Chinese companies that have been subject to some U.S. government action over the past year, and it's actually a, a surprisingly huge list. Yeah, and, man, and, they got they got I a mean, big it's, team it's, over
1: there. Well, and, and
0: it's not just the NA list. It's things like you know rejecting the China Mobile 214 license to operate in the U.S. Right, so it, it, it looks to, from Beijing's optic, it looks like, it does look like well, the U.S. really is concerned about you know China's rise in all these areas. Is no. it, the technology power but obviously each one of these has its own driver and you know and obviously things like the Xinjiang and the difficult situation there has driven this action against u.s uh, chinese AI outcomes the, the the flip side of that though is that it's really put a big chill on the on the on the um, on the ai sector here in china you just wrote a really good piece i believe on the, the china ai winter um, which was excellent so i think um you know this is a this is really all these issues are tricky because of the um you know the the, the 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 if you concatenate them them together, it looks like a sort of full full up assault by the the U S against Chinese tech companies.
1: Yeah, oftentimes on Twitter, Paul, you seem to get frustrated by mm-hmm. the lack of sort of technological background that right. people uh, who comment on these sorts of issues we've been discussing about mm-hmm. in this episode mm-hmm. right. um, bring to the table. So take the next five minutes and you know give. Uh, the China Econ Talk listenership, your syllabus to how to best uh, bone up on these issues, which, you know, a lot right. of folks listening right. to the show are, you know, history majors and poli sci majors and area study majors and have not. Um, right. Put a lot of time to this, but at the same time, understand that these are really important things for understanding the world in the 21st century.
0: Yeah, yeah, and you know, I try to I, I try not to be <laughs> too annoying on Twitter, but I, I guess what I get frustrated with are comments related to technology that just show, uh, you know, it's just and it's not surprising, right? It just people haven't been steeped in the industry. So our clients, for example, I spend a lot of time with clients that are uh, on all sides of the tech issues, and, and you know, they're 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 either suppliers of hardware or their customers, and so the industry view of of, of, of of the of the sort of the technology space and and China's place in it, you know, is one view, right? Yeah. And, and it's and, and for example, a company like Huawei is viewed very differently in the industry than it is sort of in the DC bubble. Yeah. And so um, when I see people in the DC bubble, for example, talking about five G and Huawei in a way that just does not comport. With the view of of the people who deal with them on a day to day basis, for example, in industry, um, and and make claims, you know, there are sort of memes that are repeated in the media often without without being sort of you know. Examined carefully, then then I get
1: a little frustrated. But but um, you know let's that- let's stay, let's stay yeah, there for sure. a second. So mm-hmm. you know you spent a lot of time in government, right? What do you think are the sort of incentives that warp the sort of analysis of these issues within the Beltway? And do you feel like you've been able to learn a lot more? Uh, <laughs> you yeah. know, having having lost right. your clearance, right? Well, I, absolutely. I, I think that within certain quarters
0: of governments, you know, the the mandate is when you smell roses, you you, you think funeral, right? You don't think wedding, right? Um, and so and also. The there's a, there's a, you know, it's difficult within government sometimes to get out and talk to industry, understand something as complicated as the mobile tech communications industry, right? It's a sure. very complicated industry. Um, I was in Barcelona with 135,000 people in March that, that were essentially the industry, right? And that's a very, very complicated group. There's lots going on in, in that space. And it's really impossible to understand that, I think, <laughs> without, um, you know, being, being at least tangentially um, related to to the companies that are involved and talking to them on a regular basis and understanding what goes in, for example, to building a modern telecommunications network, right? It's, it's, it isn't rocket science, but it's pretty close.
1: And they're not in DC, right? Right. It's not like Raytheon is down the hall and, you know, your former commanding officer works there and everyone's buds, you know? Right.
0: And and the other issue is it's global. It's a global industry. The global value chains and supply chains are, are everywhere, right? So the U S view of this, for example, is, is one view, but even U S carriers and U S Players are global, right? They're, they, yeah. they're not just U.S. Co- companies; they're not just operating in the U.S. So the problem is in D.C. it's it's a very sort of U.S.-centric view of the world. And if you go to Europe or you go to Asia, you get a very different view of some of these issues. And again, you know, I'm just trying to bring to the argument or to the to the debate a, a sort of industry view that's not you know defending or you know taking a position, a government position, or defending a company, but just saying, look, here's the reality of the industry. And if Carrier X has invested so much in infrastructure. Based on their willingness to trust a particular company, a particular vendor, then we have to at least account for that. If the U.S. for example is going to adopt a policy that says, you know, oh, we don't like that vendor, you're going to have to rip that, out, you're going to have to rip all the equipment out, right? That, that 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 comes with a cost. That comes with, um, you know, a lot of a lot of baggage. That I think th- that you don't get that argument when you're in the Beltway and in the bubble. It's just well, okay, China. We don't. We can't trust China or Chinese companies, and so um, that, that's tough, right? And, and, yeah. and I, all I'm trying to say is that there's you know there's sort of another side to the story.
1: Sure. So, given that there's another side to the story, like what do you think the Treasury Department should be doing? The Treasury Department, or I don't know, whatever. <laughs> right, right, right,
0: Well, I, I yeah. If, if we take, if we take, for example, the uh, the issue of of vendors and country of origin, which is a big issue, right? I think, I think the um, the, the 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 approach that the UK and Germany have taken right. or will take um, is is probably. At the end of the day a more fruitful one and a more useful one they've decided that they can they can for example mitigate the risk of 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 um, of any vendor in the network no matter matter w- w- what the country of origin is um, and working with the carriers the government can increase standards around 5g security for example yep. um and uk made that decision back at 10 years ago when they decided to allow chinese companies into their into their market because the carriers basically said we need to be able to have vendor diversity and we need to ha- we need to be able to choose the best solution and the best cost for whatever we're doing so the uk government agreed to that and then they agreed to, to take extraordinary measures for example to review the source code yep. of, in this case of Huawei so they, they feel took- bad for whoever they made <laughs> <laughs> Whoever's on that job, right, right. That's a, that's. A, can you imagine? Um. The, but but you know, and, and and but it's interesting that no other. I don't think any, any other company that sort of turned over source code. Now the argument is, well, you know, that it's all software, and so it doesn't really matter what the what the source code is. But you know, in a sense, the, 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 it's it's a major global multinational turning over source code to a the, the intelligence services you know, of, of, of an adver- a potential adversary, right? So, so I think that approach is sort of balancing the national security with economic. Sort of um, reality right of, of, of the cost of, of these things I think that's that's an approach ultimately that that would be more beneficial to everybody right it, it would it would ensure the 5g rollout is secure it would, it would ensure that it happens in a in a, in a reasonable uh, a reasonable time frame because yeah. I think otherwise, you know, the, the U.S. sort of waited late. I, 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 Europeans have told me this. They waited sort of late in the game to say, oh, God, this is, you know, this is a problem. This was after, you know, vendors around the world or carriers around the world had invested, you know, billions of dollars in equipment. Do you think and, that was a function know, was a of deal. just
1: like dysfunctional Trump White House 2016, 2017 or – um, had the system not made up its mind as to how big a deal this was?
0: I think the system hadn't made up its mind and sort of 5G was sort of still Very on the abstract, horizon. Yeah. I mean, I think the big difference between, say, China and the U.S. is, you know, China was obsessed with this mobile technology, 4G, and, and having Chinese companies participate. And so they made a big push with 5G. I wrote about it this in my white paper, The Geopolitics of 5G. You know, it was a whole of government thing. In the U.S., it's been, there hasn't been an industrial policy for a long time in, in a lot of areas. And so, Which you know, may or may not be a bad thing. But yeah, yeah. I mean, now, now there's now recently there's yeah, been a, a big doing a call apparently. for industrial policy, but but you know, basically the carriers were chugging along, and nobody really until last year, sort of, in, in, I think in the U.S. government realized, wow, 5G is like just over the horizon, right? It's it's a year away, yep. um, and and sort of focused on, on the implications of what 5G really meant, uh, and then and then you had pretty quickly, um, you know,
1: the, the, a policy come together uh, that we see playing out right now. Yeah. So so you mentioned this new um american push for industrial policy mm-hmm. it's it's this is one of the dynamics that's really struck me in the past year or two of america seeming to take policy cues from china in at least a few respects is this just how every what happens in every cold war i mean what is the um uh, uh, what are the dynamics here and what and what what potential risks of overreaction do right. you see well you know i think the, the what, what there are a couple of aspects of this one
0: is the 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 um because there is no There's no US, for example, US 5G vendor um, to compete with 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 uh, with China. The question is what should the US five G strategy be? And so that that almost p- that quickly leads you into some sort of policy of supporting alternative players or um, or supporting the European vendors, for example, there's been a lot of talk of that. Um, and then also a big part of that is for example US spectrum policy. The US yeah. has had no spectrum policy and that's really huge. That's coming to a head I think in the next couple of months. It's been decades. Um, it's right. unbelievable. There's, well it's it's crazy because you know because the mid band spectrum for example for five G is critical and it's controlled in the U.S. by the satellite operators in the military um, and there's nobody sort of sitting over those players at the White House that can say, hey, you know, gee, 5G should be a priority. Yeah. So Congress now is weighing in on this. So, that, so that's one thing. The other piece of it is that there's a perception, it's been as part of the Trump agenda that, that there's, that U.S. lacks advanced manufacturing. So in the last couple of months you've seen, seen discussions around should the U.S. subsidize a big company to come to the U.S., return to the U.S., either a U.S. company or, for example, Taiwan's TSMC, yeah. which makes, uh, semiconductors. So part of the bigger picture is that there's a, because of the way supply chains have developed over the last decade, and a lot of U.S. companies offshoring a lot of production, you have these concentrations, for example, semiconductor uh, manufacturing in Taiwan and in South Korea. There's a huge amount of memory, uh, the world's memory capacity sitting next to the DMZ in, in North Korea, and there's a hell of a lot of, of, of the world's ASIC and, you know, fabbing power uh, sitting in Taiwan, uh, both for China, ironically, of course, and for the U.S. And so there's a perception that maybe that's not a good thing over the long run that there should be more diversity there and maybe some of that capacity can be brought back to the U S and most developed countries do subsidize advanced manufacturing to some degree, Germany and Israel and other yeah. places. And so I think the feeling is, gosh, you know, everybody else is doing it. China's doing it. Um, why shouldn't the U S um, you know, uh, be, be a part of that and, and help to make sure that, that, that um, you know, things like semiconductors are not all manufactured or most of them manufactured outside of the U S.
1: Yeah. Can this work? I mean, is this, uh, is it, is it too late for a, for a, you know, new generation, advanced manufacturing renaissance in the U S that can, address not just that can you know bring 10,000 jobs back but can really address the sort of security vulnerabilities that people are uh, right. really worried right. about well I think the problem is that
0: that is really sort of a, a people problem so you know you could you can see potentially building a facility in the u.s like uh, something as complicated as a, as a as a high-end semiconductor manufacturing facility but you need the people to man it uh, Foxconn was gonna has been trying to build this factory in Wisconsin and they're trying to find a certain um, you know 13,000 qualified people yeah, and engineers they gave up basically and right basically it's too difficult. So the part of the problem in the U.S. It's not just it's it's uh, it's a part. And there was a good article actually that was written a couple days ago about about this, this this very issue, which is that if you do offshore all this advanced manufacturing, um, a lot of stuff goes with it, right? In, yeah. in innovation, some of the supporting industries, and then obviously the U.S. education system is really not. Uh, geared up to meet that meet the demand i mean and and again that's where china for example has a huge advantage because they're cracking out really large numbers of well-qualified people i was just in shenzhen um, a couple days ago Um, a good friend of mine runs an ai company and he says you know they go out here to the universities they they give a lecture they they give a really 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 hard test to people there and they interview them on the spot they get the top five people and then they hire him on the spot, and he said, "There's no way he could do that in the U.S. because yeah. there's just not the pool of ready people." And these are these are these are undergraduates too, including both undergraduates and graduates. So obviously, um, you know, that's a piece, if, if the U.S. is going to attract pack advanced manufacturing, I think it's going to have to be, you know. Probably the more traditionally government program to really boost the education system and immigration um, too, and, and not I mean. exactly, and not um, not cut off immigra- immigration because the, the problem is really people. You know, this is where this is again where if you look at China, there's just this huge advantage. You can't you can't you know you can't wish that away. Yeah. Um, and and then you know the the is you, you raise the concern about you know the, this other piece that this is is a huge obsession in the U.S. with supply chains and the fact that there's so many supply chains in China. So you, you and there have been some movement of supply chains out of china but again it's if it's not a simple thing to to re relocate a factory because it's all the supporting elements and in some cases education is part of it companies move uh move out of china for example to uh, indonesia and other places they have to educate the 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 workforce there because because that that's part of the equation it's not just you know the physical plant um or the location so that's you know I, i think but I think there is a, there's enough momentum gathering in the U.S. now, um, in, in a lot of different places, and, it, and you know, industry supports th- this kind of thing too. The semiconductor industry, for example, um, is would be supportive of of bringing some of this stuff back to the U.S. But but you know, it, it's going to have to make sense from a market point of view too. It's, it can't be sort of brute industrial policy. Yeah, um, it's going to have to have a market element. The head of TSMC said this. You know, he said, "Well, it's too expensive right now in the U.S." Right? Um, so he would there would have to be some subsidies, and there would have to be a sort of a long term vision for. You know, where does the U.S. want to be in ten years on semiconductors and on five G or you know six G? There's a lot of a lot of churn in that space because you know oh, we're, we're going to wake up in 2029 and you know it's still going to be a world where Huawei and CTE dominate the and a couple of European companies dominate the um, you know the field. Yeah. So there, there's a real fear of that, and so there's some. But the problem is the U.S. system, <laughs> the government, you know, it's a it's a short term, you know, four year uh, time horizon, and um, so it's hard to. And, and some of these technology issues are ten year problems, right? How do you how do you solve them in ten years? And that's where again China has the advantage of this sort of, um, you know, the having the being able to stick to something for ten years and and
1: and see it out. Yeah, I mean, it's. Uh you, you you spoke to immigration and as uh, as a foreigner who is was recently washed out of the Chinese tech ecosystem, you know, it's very clear that this is the real big edge that the U.S. has is we can take talent from all over the world and a lot more people speak English than speak Chinese. And uh, it is incredibly hard from a linguistic perspective, from a cultural perspective, for chinese firms to integrate foreign talent this is something that the u.s is proved is world class in and um you know getting on my hobby horse here for us to throw this away because uh steven miller reads some uh sketchy blogs is right. something that makes me uh, very sad waking up reading the news every morning yeah yeah i think and we talk about
0: in our um in our top one of our top risks this year was called innovation winter um, we have to. This is part of our annual exercise to come up with the top ten risks, and I think that's part of that was the was the sort of interruption of these flows of capital and 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 I think the personnel one is probably the most important between. Um, you know, not just China, but but also other other places like India and the U.S. with the with the sort of tightening up of visas and and, and particularly on STEM yeah. STEM students. And yeah, that's a huge thing for U.S. companies. They're they they've been you know benefiting from a large number of those of those qualified students staying in the U.S. and working for them. Um, and so I think that's probably the the, the most you know sort of the, one of the worst aspects of the U.S. China conflict and the. The decoupling is, that, is that, that, that the U.S. becomes a hostile, essentially hostile territory for Chinese students and researchers. We're already hearing about that, for example, in the AI realm, yep. it, and in part because of this issue we discussed earlier um, on the analyst. Those companies, um, you know, a lot of those companies, for example, sent researchers to, to conferences that are really you know uh, computer vision and uh and and now I'm, I'm i've heard in you know from industry people here that that you know they're they're avoiding those those uh, those events in the u.s and the, i mean the, i had a the, grad a student in korea and there other was places. like
1: a grad student friend of mine and who was a you know who was an engineering uh, uh an engineering phd and she just like wanted to present a paper in uh, hawaii and it took four months and the conference passed and right you know she's like gonna go work on like recommendation algorithms for like 10 cent video this is like the least right. the least like scandalous like you know security thing in the world but um it is now reaching out and and um affecting much more than the the sort of um sketchy targeted uh stuff which i think it uh, has it has every white right too but right. at the same time seeing it spill over is, is really unfortunate right and that gets back to your your i think your great comment earlier which is
0: yeah i mean on on really these really tough issues like xinjiang that we've been dealing with here um yeah i mean at one level it's it's i think there that there's there's a loss of patience and something should be done um on this on this really tough issue and so we we have you know things like visas being denied for for chinese officials but the, the but the technology piece is tricky because you if you don't do it carefully you risk sort of painting a, a whole industry with a certain brush right so part of the problem now is for example is, is that those companies sort of have a scarlet letter on, on them right yep. because because of this issue and so then the question is you know how do you how do you again as i mentioned you know how do you, how do you get that off your back um if you're going to take uh, you know a sort of a broad brush approach that's going to be one thing i think there are those arguing in the u.s that in terms of for example controlling technology the u.s should take a more you know sort of a high wall a, a smaller a smaller sort of
1: yeah whatever the, broad that brush whatever
0: that means <laughs> but 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 you know, protect protect the technology and and sort of and take take strong measures as as needed. But try to be a little more uh, surgical and nuanced, and not end up with a situation where you know all Chinese students are painted as yeah. as potentially you know spies for the Chinese government. This is this is the situation we're, we're on in the, in the U.S. Um, and there's been a lot of pushback on that sort of approach. From you know Asian organizations in the U.S., but you know that, that that's the world we're in right now, where where um, the climate in Washington is very toxic on China, and so we get these sort of um, you know these statements that 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 um, are ultimately I think going to be really. Um, damaging for the U.S. For as much as for the U.S. as for China.
1: Do you see any future in which she is still in power and the dynamic changes? No, I think with Xi in power, probably not. I think, but I, but
0: I think I was in China when um, when Tiananmen Square happened, right? So I I've seen you know, uh, the China go from very stable and and nobody nobody um, on the streets to you know thousands of people on the streets. Um, I think we make the mistake that some I think commentators in the West make is that they they sort of linearly. Project, project out, forward. Yeah. Um, uh, the, you know, the, I think that the, if you went, the longer time you spend here, you realize there's a lot going on here. Um, there are a lot of forces at work that um, that that could change the system suddenly. Uh, and we saw this with the recent leak of the Xinjiang documents. Right? There's obviously there's there's people there are people in the system here who who may not agree with the, the the direction of certain policies. So I think the mistake is to sort of project linearly linear forward and then say, well, this is never going to change. I think we're going to see um, the technology. Uh, and I've seen this just in this recent trip. I mean, the technology also is an enabler, right? I mean, when I first came to China, there was you know the fax machine ruled, right? And yeah. and, e- and even mm-hmm. then, you know, the students were able to use um, the fax machines to communicate. But now, you know, the the, the system is a wash in information. And yes, there's there are controls around that information, but but wow, I mean, people, I think uh, I find, for example, are are very adept at getting around some of the controls. And so that w- what I find is that people really do know, have a lot of um, Uh, Visibility on what's going on, and so you know it's sort of this uh, the situation we talked about earlier, where the the government has allowed the spread of this this very enabling technology, and it can do this um, uh, up to a certain point, but you know it's also enables people to really to 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 to, um, have a much different view of the system, and so I think that one of the views in the West seems to be that you know people in China are living in this censored world where um, they 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 don't know what's going on around them, and I think that's that's sort of a a limited view of 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 how China. And, and, and its information uh, realm is, is is evolving it's evolving very fast and that i think plays into the you know the, the um the difficulty of the uh, in managing any issue that comes up hong kong is another good example and even Xinjiang here where we've seen you know leaks to basically a, a leaks to wikileaks here right i mean a chinese sort of wikileaks uh, issue which which wouldn't have been possible you know 20 years ago sure
1: um so ai trips what are they what's the chinese government thinking about them
0: Great, great issue. So AI chips are basically come in uh, in two flavors. One is um, sort of edge chips. That's the thing that's on. That's the Kirin uh, part of the Kirin processor on your yeah. phone or, or your, your Apple uh, your iPhone, um, and that's doing things like facial recognition on your phone to unlock your phone, right? So there's so there's there's a, a big and most of the startups in the world now are f- focusing on AI on the edge because uh, that'll be they'll be those kinds of chips will be used in, in autonomous vehicles to do a lot of the processing. Uh, at the front end of that, because again, a lot of image recognition and, 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 and um, uh, sort of computer vision, if you will. So that's the big thing. And then there's the there, then there's the chips that are in the cloud that are used for training. So those are the that's the big iron. That's that's uh that and that's really dominated now by companies like Nvidia, AMD, and Intel, sure. um, U.S. companies. So China has come into this sort of again late in the game. You look at the National AI Plan; it emphasized the semiconductor part of the equation, and everybody gets that now that you know the, the AI stack with with semiconductors at the base, training algorithms in the middle, and then sort of the applications on top that China maybe has a chance to play more in the at the lower end of the of the stack here, but it's really tough because because the the, the established players are so big. So I think again, ironically in this, the the, the best semiconductor AI company in China is Huawei. Um, yeah, they
1: they they have actually um, high silicon baby. You know, high silicon is investing ten percent sort of- in R and D for. Thirty years gets you somewhere. High Silicon is going to be the biggest customer
0: of TSMC next year, and mm-hmm. I think that's that. That's very telling, um, and that's by far and large is cutting edge chips, not just AI chips, but certainly they're they're looking at, at pushing into that market. The really interesting thing is if High Silicon and Huawei would become OEMs um, for those chips to other Chinese companies, because right now they're all of their chips that they're designing are for their own consumption, and I think this is where the U.S. China. Tech Cold War that we've talked about uh, comes in where if the U.S. explain,
1: explain that concept. Okay. OEMs yeah. for other Chinese so companies. Base, what would that mean?
0: That would mean that that uh, for example that Huawei could sell its chips to Xiaomi or to Oppo or Vivo or some of the, or, or ZTE to use in their handsets or their for example their base stations. So right now those companies are buying from Qualcomm, they're buying from Broadcom, they're buying from a whole host of other vendors. Huawei has, has and HiSilicon have taken the route of designing essentially. All the chips that they are going to use, all the major chips they're going to use, except for memory. So they're going to. So the, the Huawei phone I just bought has the uh, has the five thousand, which is the um, which is the sort of Qualcomm equivalent. It's the baseband chip that's doing a lot of the RF processing. Um, and then um, the the Kirin uh, system on a chip has has both um, Huawei IP in there and ARM IP. Um, which is one of their partners, and so so the the the, um, the those, and then they're also designing the um, AI chips for the edge, the Ascend 301, the Ascend 901 mm-hmm. was going to be a cloud-based uh, version. That's also based on ARM, um, and so you know they're they're they they basically have made the decision to 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 develop almost all their own chips, except for the memory. Piece of it, which is really difficult, um, and that's they're going to still rely on, on on the major players like South Korea and um, and, um, and and even the U.S. Micron is a big vendor to them. Um, so, but but if they decide to not just use those chips for their own handsets and their own base stations and sell those to other Chinese companies, that would that would be a huge. Boost for the Chinese industry in terms of weaning itself off of, of of U.S.
1: and other foreign technology. So, what goes into that decision? Just like being good enough and being able to <laughs> produce it cheap enough that the yes. profit margins are such that even if we sell it to our competitors, it still yes. works it, out for us.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think there's there would have to be a, a strong business case. I mean, when I talk to to people uh, at Huawei, for example, I say it's not really in their DNA, right? I mean, they don't they don't see themselves. Yeah, they want to kill these guys, right? They don't <laughs> they don't see themselves as sort of the savior of China's you know semiconductor industry or to you know. Know, the same making making indigenous innovation, uh, you know, a piece of, a part of their of their the DNA. So yeah, so it would have to be a the business case would have to be there to do this. Um, and you know, you can see the the government potentially weighing in and saying, "Gee, now maybe it would be great if if um, if you supplied these chips to to other companies." Because because the problem is there's no the high silicon is so good, right? And they're manufacturing these things. They have TSMC, to, they, they can manufacture at the at the seven nanometer and beyond node. Um, and so they're the, they're the really the only company in China that's really Capable of iterating these designs at that cutting edge, Um, and so they sort of, it it might be a natural move for them to move into that business, but they don't, you know, they're sort of. I think it it will depend on the U.S.-China, the the state of the of the trade talks, and where we end up in the next
1: year or so with this whole decoupling thing, and you know, because the dynamic being that. Mm Uh, Xiaomi is worried That if they start Buying Huawei chips Then they're going to be Sucked into Whatever mess Huawei is in Right right I think we have to Sort of The the dust has to
0: settle um, On the US action Against Huawei And you know The just, Which may never. Right? Well, this week there'll probably be some licenses, um, you know, that are going to be issued. Probably, maybe the, by the time we're, we're on the air, this will they'll have issued some licenses. But yeah, I think the general feeling is that this will this will muddle muddle through going forward. Um, but that, but that, but again, Huawei Huawei is um, is has has I think has made a decision to to um, you know no matter what happens to continue to pursue development of it uh, and, and wean itself off of basically. Um, all of the really key semiconductors that that, it, that it has relied on, except for for um for the for the for some some niche areas like memory. Um, so I think I think then the next year we'll see um uh, where China is going to go on um you know both its own internal efforts to to put pressure on companies to, to to reduce their dependence on foreign foreign technology and also on um, you know the, the capabilities to develop the capabilities to do this this, this is a long-term game this isn't going to go away um, soon because you know semiconductors really are rocket science um, and it, it takes a lot of effort and again the personnel the right personnel you mentioned that they've invested in r and d has taken a long time um, but yeah this 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 is this is a, China's playing the long game here I think for, for our, a lot of our clients are concerned of course that what this means over the next ten years is that basically China designs out u s technology right and so yeah. that that that's sort of the um, where where the the real impact on the u s and that's that, they make a national security argument here, which is that you know they 're generating a tremendous amount of r and d revenue uh re- amount of revenue in china which they're applying back into r&d and then they're able to innovate for the u.s market which helps u.s national security right so Sorry. so so Sorry, say that one more time who's making that argument this is the argument that the this u.s the semiconductor the, 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 industry the, is making the Nvidia's of the world right because you know they the, the u.s semiconductor industry derives 36 percent of its global revenue from just from china right yeah and a chunk a big chunk of that is from huawei so if you're going to basically over time erode that that revenue then that's all not of a sudden, base- our company's
1: thirty percent smaller. We're yeah. hiring thirty percent fewer PhDs. Right. Right. The whole thing atrophies. Right.
0: Yeah, and, and and then their ability to innovate, um, uh, and iterate, and keep ahead of of, of the of the curve um, is, is is slowly eroded. That's that's the. Yeah, argument. I
1: don't know. Yeah. I mean,
0: maybe. Yeah, that's a hard one to game out. Um, yeah, I mean, because, well, the question is, are there alternative markets that they, you know, do they can, can they, spend can more they, work on? It and, yeah, I mean, I think that the, the, the general view is that China is such a huge market. And, and those companies are not just selling into it, but they're designing for it, right? Yeah. Because in some cases, um, you know, China is, is, is leading in, in, uh, in, in developing certain kinds of applications. And so it's, it's, it's a sort of a twofer there. It's not just the revenue, but it's the sort of the, the size of the market and the fact that you can – it can scale –
1: um so so rapidly and, and hugely yeah a little bit more on Huawei uh, you know, you've been following this company for a very long time now and it is really one of the very few firms, if not the only firm in China that has is absolutely world beating in like the mm-hmm. hardest thing on the, in like one of the mm-hmm. hardest things to research in the world so, can you reflect a little bit about what it was that got it to where it is today, and why so many other Chinese firms have not necessarily been able to be there? Or is that the wrong framing when we're taking a look at a developing country and the fact that they have at least one company um, doing this right. sort of thing is is an accomplishment in and of itself?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. I think there's a lot of um, <laughs> a lot of debate on, around the rise. Of, you know, how how did Huawei um, become such a dominant player? I think you know, there's a couple factors. Clearly, they had some. Very capable management team uh, there. I mean, you can't you can't sort of um, escape that. And and interestingly, they had it that that management team at a time when probably very few other Chinese companies did and a team that was intent on making the company global, right? I mean, they were not, they obviously, I think from the very beginning, didn't see themselves as just a Chinese company. Yeah.
1: They brought in like Intel to be their big consultants and teach them how to manage. Right. Not just Intel, they brought in, they brought
0: in, you know, McKinsey and IBM and they brought a lot of consultants in to sort of teach them how to, how to become a global player. So, um, I think that, and you know, and then, they were. They were also. We have. You mustn't uh, underestimate. You know, just the size of the Chinese market. So when they, when, when, if, if the, when the Chinese government basically decided to sort of wean itself off foreign. Foreign telecom companies for a lot of the infrastructure um, in the '90s. By that time, Huawei and ZTE were just becoming mature, and so they had sort of a ready-made huge market, right? which yeah. which which is something that you can't you can't um, you can't sort of th- dismiss. And but you know they were. But the, the, I think the key thing is is was this commitment to, to plowing a lot of money back into R and D, and that just comes from Ren Zhengfei's personal he, commitment right, to, uh, right and also service so the the thing you, that you find you know people talk about oh they, they, they're undercutting on price but really what 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 a lot of carriers really like and we we you know we 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 hear this all the time is you know if Deutsche Telekom has a problem with uh with uh with a network they'll they'll put 50 engineers on a plane and send it out there so they have this 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 very sort of strong commitment to to service and it's that's interesting yeah and that's
1: something rare that, for a chinese firm
0: that's right and i think it was probably at the time even you know domestically they 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 set up offices all around china and so they so it's, yeah it was very rare for chinese companies to have this sort of this sort of approach so i think their 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 success can be attributed to sort of you know, whatever you want to say run run seems to have been a, a, a bit of a, a visionary and he and his sort of personal will and bringing in um, you know a very very um, senior managers and you know and maintaining sort of a focus on these on on the core technology and on service you know so 25 years later they're they're a juggernaut um and they're a global player so yeah i mean i think but it's, it's it is a good a good question as to as to um you know why other chinese companies haven't been able to do this you go to zte and they're you know they're a very capable company but they seem like a state-owned uh, enterprise right Yes yeah. they, they still have the feel of sort of the state-owned enterprise origins whereas huawei feels like a genuine like like a multinational company uh and operates you know uh globally um uh, in, in that manner so they they feel very uh international from the very
1: Chinese. But but Chinese right. looking out,
0: um, um, right right. I mean that that's one of the criticisms is that you know there aren't that many senior uh, foreigners in management. But yeah, I mean they're 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 a very um, they're a very Chinese company with 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 global footprint and aspirations and um, and have been able to execute you know in a way that, that is unusual. I mean I, I mentioned higher earlier. There are some other examples. I think that that's the challenge, the real challenge going forward of all of companies that are in these other areas that are a little more competitive now they're they're more sensitive because of data issues for example Alibaba and Tencent going into Europe where yep. there's there's new data privacy regulations so Chinese companies now Huawei I think faced a less Difficult regulatory environment probably twenty years ago. Then Chinese the, the new sort of Chinese tech yeah. wave. Now they're man they're you know China is never going to be deemed adequate under GDPR. Nobody believes that. Um, but the companies are trying to to themselves be compliant, um, and we don't really know how that's going to play out. In, in, in when the regulators sort of turn their their attention to China and Europe, um, because this is not. It hasn't really happened before. I, I was talking to a, this drone company I mentioned earlier, XAG, which is trying to do similar things in Europe that they're doing in China. But you know, they're they're sending the, up the drones, ag- people, right? They're setting yeah. up drones and taking pictures of farms. And, you know, they're 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 getting into some, some potentially sensitive areas, um, and they're also very c- conscious of the regulatory environment in Europe and trying to figure out how to navigate that. Um, so that's you know, we're in this interesting time
1: when when data has now become it's sort so of the ridiculous. So like, what's sensitive about right. like the vineyards and southern france i mean like come on what are, what are you what, what, what secrets are you really going to learn you know like make big bets on the commodities markets or this right. stuff i mean just well, buy, look at some satellites well like, the, the example in the
0: u.s is of dji right
1: which ran into yes. trouble when they were
0: doing they were surveying you know critical infrastructure like electronic electric pylons that for for maintenance and they were you know they were sending data back somewhere the Ali cloud and uh so they've tried they've worked pretty hard in the u.s to try to to, to ensure yeah regulators that they're not they're not you know sending everything back to beijing yeah. but yeah so but i think drones inherently <laughs> uh, drones up there doing something you know and particularly you throw ai into it too there uh, the, then that raises a lot of um yeah. hackles in, in certain quarters so that, that's but but i think that um the data issue is really going forward i think and even huawei is facing this too like how do they handle data uh and you know are they gdpr compliant you know what sort of Data they have their hands on. There's a perception, for example, that Huawei has its hands on data, but as a vendor, you know they don't really have their. They have a very limited um, exposure to the actual data flowing over the network. They have they have a sort of low level maintenance view of this. They're still uh, under scrutiny as to, in terms of how they deal with with uh, with data in in uh, in vendor networks or in carrier networks. So the data issue, I think, going forward is going to be huge because China is still an outlier, right? I mean, they're they're not in any of the major data regimes like GDPR, and they like, won't ever be. I mean Well, I, I, interestingly, during the trade talks, the issue of, of opening up cloud services in China came up, and that inevitably led to discussions Interesting. About, about things like the cross-border privacy rules in APEC, which – or have been out there for a while they're voluntary some in china don't like them but there's sort of an asian effort to you know to get a handle around hmm. around data and data localization there's also CP, cpp which um has is really the gold standard for some of the data allowing you know outlawing data localization and so eventually at some point you can see if the trade talks go well and we get back to, to some to discussing some of these really tough issues around data that, that at least they'll be it'll be out there on the table because there are those in China who recognize they can't forever remain outside, um, global, uh, global best practices on data or their companies are going to have a
1: really hard time operating outside sure. of China. So that's, uh, that's, all that's right. something we look at a lot for for clients. Sure. Um, so last question and, uh, I asked it before, but I'm going to ask it again. So folks wanting to learn more about these issues, um, if they don't necessarily have the, uh, wherewithal to, Book tickets to barcelona and hang out with qualcomm engineers um you know advice particularly for young folks looking to to learn more about these yeah, sorts yeah. of issues i mean
0: there's a lot of really good um Resources out there on on the web, for example. So uh, I, I recommend sites like Light Reading. Some of the industry sites, um, like, like Digital Times, is a really good on the semiconductor industry, mm-hmm. and they're written for a, a, an audience that's not necessarily steeped in you know in uh, in the physics of semiconductors. But they're really good industry. Um, sites like that that track things so that over time you get a you get a good sense of, of of what the issues are in the industry and they touch on a lot of policy issues too they're they're focused on technology so like the, so um, digital times for semiconductors light reading is really good for the telecom industry they cover five g um, and then and then the gsma also that that runs barcelona for example they put out a lot of studies um, that are that are free out there on sort of the the five g industry mm-hmm. um, and so i think um, you know there's, the nice thing is there's there's lots of resources out there to avail yourself of, and and certainly conferences. I mean, really for five G, what, what I think Barcelona it's a beautiful it's a beautiful place, and the hotels are really good. Um, but 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 there are uh, there are other conferences, um, the, the versions of that that are held in L A. and in um, I think there's one in Korea. Um, so. The, the, those kind of technology conferences, and I know you know those, those are certainly venues where you can you can talk to um, people in the industry and and get a get a really good sense of, of things are going. I I ten, attend four to five sort of industry conferences a year. I try to at least um, in addition to talking to um, you know regularly to our clients who are working on all these issues. So you know there's ways to do that, but it's tricky because in in uh, in college and in sort of curriculums, there's not a whole lot of there's not a lot of um, uh, emphasis on technology policy. There's some there's some newer Programs that are focusing on that, so it's a combination of both the technology, understanding technology, and the policy piece of it. Um, and I think that's where um, you know when I'm looking to hire people, I look for people who, who who ideally have some industry experience, maybe a little bit of government experience, so they understand sort of how policy is made, um, and then um, understand something about a regional you know like China or, or regional markets, um, because all those things are, are critical to understanding um, you know where things are going with
1: 5G in U.S., China, or the EU. Yep. But I think, you know, as this past hour of conversation clearly indicates, none of these issues are going away Um, and and there are and there are a reflection of broader geopolitical trends, which are towards, you know, more tension across every dimension. And um, we're not going to go back to 1996 anytime soon. And given that these sorts of, um, you know, very fundamental differences that countries have will filter down into um, things that seem apolitical on their face, but actually uh, have a lot of uh, very, uh, very naughty stuff tied into them.
0: Yeah, I think we're we're in this meme now where you know for any advanced technology, AI, quantum computing, 5G, semiconductors, there is more and more a sense that um, you know that we're locked in sort of this competition to dominate these or to become a you know to to be, to, to, to be major players in this. And you know it's not just us and China; it's Europe too. Europe feels like they don't have any big players. For example, in in AI, and because they don't have any big platform companies like Google or mm-hmm. or, or, or Alibaba and and so, you know, the rest of the world is looking at sort of the US China piece and they're wondering how, to, how do they um, fit into this? Because uh, that, that, it, it is. Not just about the U.S. and China, but it's about you know the next 1.5 billion internet users in sure. in emerging markets. Of course, a lot of them are going to be are going to be using transient phones, um, and they're going to be you know, using uh, Alipay and WeChat Pay to pay for pay for things, right? So there's a there's a there's, well, a, there's Facebook Pay, I mean yeah, Facebook right, or Libra. Maybe Libra <laughs> will, will you know that's what that's and that's the argument that, the tra- that that's the that real Facebook, market for it, right? right. It is
1: like right. right. It's like Africa, and It's the unbanked, it's the
0: unbanked yeah. in the in the developed world. So so ironically, of course, that's you know the the Argument: the freaking um, a, Congress is just screwing over Facebook's Africa and Middle East plans, right? And 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 the Facebook pushback is that if you do that, you're going to the Chinese companies are going to dominate. Um, you know that that seg those segments, and so unfortunately, <laughs> even even though we're talking about we we talk about other markets like. Developing countries in Africa, there is sort of a China-U.S. dimension to that because um, the big players, and the big platforms, and the payment systems are all, um, you know, from one or the other countries. Um, but but I think that's where the that's exciting. That's the exciting thing is that, that you know is you know think about 1.5 billion people um, unbanked online, you know, and and participating in the you know the, uh, the 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 global dialogue here. Hopefully, it will be it will bring opportunity and um, you know we're going to be focusing for example at Eurasia group next year I'm trying to do more on emerging markets uh, Africa India where you know where there's a tremendous amount of of development going on in the tech realm and they're also grappling with all these issues we've discussed around data and around around who's building their 5G networks um, so it is it, that's what makes the, the job interesting here um, is that we we, we we have clients that are dealing with all these globally and so where it's not just the US and China ends up being a big the last two years a big chunk of our work but um, you know we almost every issue even with US and China has a global d- and dimension to it and so that's what makes the work exciting
1: Paul thanks for being a part of China Econ Talk great Thanks. China Econ Talk is edited by Jason McRonald and Kaiser Guo and is a proud member of the Seneca Network from Sub China. For other great shows on China, check out the Taishin Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, the New Voices podcast and of course the Seneca podcast now in its ninth year until next week
0: yeah,
1: Sh,